Christ has risen. Daylight saving time has ended. It has ended indeed. I love this story in the Gospels. It's, a, it's one of these orienting stories for me. Uh, Bishop Ed and I, we were traveling this past week. We were in Ohio for an ordination of some new priests in our diocese that we're super excited about. And the last night we were traveling, we had driven about an hour to where our hotel was by the airport. And we pulled off the highway and we knew where our hotel was, but we needed to get some gas for the rental car. And I don't know what it is about a gas station that's just like, I can get to the gas station. But we get off the highway, we don't know where we are, and we just start wandering around a little bit. And we see some lights over in that direction, so we start driving over there, there's no gas station. We see some cars coming from this direction, so we go that way a little bit, and you know, we don't find a gas station. And I pull out my phone, and I look at Bishop Ben, and I say, we have the technology <laughs> to get to the gas station. And this gospel, to me, is the technology. It is the orienting space for us that when we're unsure about what this life in Christ is really all about, I think a story like Zacchaeus helps bring us back to who we are. So this is an odd story. Um, You know, throughout the gospel of Luke, the rich do not come off well. St. Jerome, he was commenting on the rich in Luke's gospel, and he refers to them as either wicked or heirs of wickedness. But what's interesting here is that Zacchaeus is rich, but he's rich as an outsider. Most of the rich that we experience in the gospels are rich insiders. They're people who make their wealth from the temple system or within Israel's own system. But in the case of Zacchaeus, he's an Israelite who makes his wealth by working for the Roman government. He's making his wealth by serving the oppressors. So it's an odd image for us, and it's supposed to be odd to us. It's a man who is rich, again, problematic in Luke's gospel, but he's also oppressed as the oppressor. He's on the side of Rome, occupying Israel, taxing his own people, skimming off the top, And on one hand, he's the problem. But on the other hand, he is suffering because of the ways that his own people have rejected him. The Romans will still see him as less than, and he's also lost the respect of his own people. He's rich, but he's small. He's wealthy, but he doesn't have the respect from his own people. He's both inside and outside at the same time. He is the oppressed and the oppressor at the same time. And we're told that Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but the crowd will not let him. For most of us, our pop culture, pop theology has taught us that this is purely about Zacchaeus being a wee little man. (laughs) And a wee little man was he. But what we're supposed to see here is not that he is just too small, but that the crowd knows he is small and uses that to refuse 
to give him space. They recognize him as the tax collector, so they actively keep him from making his way to the front. And so what does he do? He runs ahead of the parade. He climbs a tree. And this is supposed to be funny for us. This image of a wealthy, powerful man now at the mercy of the crowd up in a tree. So here he is. He's settled on his tree branch. He's peering between the limbs. And Jesus comes to him. And he says, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. This is a surprise to everyone involved, to Zacchaeus and to the crowd. And this really speaks to the heart of the gospel for us because Zacchaeus thinks that he's come to see Jesus. He thinks he's done everything in his power to come and to seek out this miracle worker. He has fought with the crowd. He's ran ahead of them. He's found a tree to climb, for heaven's sake. He thinks he's going out of his way so that he can see Jesus. And when he doesn't realize is that Jesus is only in Jericho because Jesus is seeking Zacchaeus. The good news is that this is true for all of us. We think that we're seeking God, but whatever we are seeking, whatever seeking that we are doing is already the work of God seeking us. If we are praying, if we're a prayerful people, it's because the prayer of Christ is in us. If we think we're going to invite Jesus to our house, it's because he's already inviting himself into our house. Jesus is always the friend inviting himself over. And when he invites himself, we become the guests. We're never the host. We're always responding to Christ's mercy. We're never creating it. So any good that happens in my life, it happens because God is acting gracefully on my behalf before I even know how to ask for good things. On some level, I think we believe that the good that happens in our life, it won't happen unless we want it or unless we ask for it or we go and get it. But the reality is that the wanting it, it only happens because the good is happening to you. God isn't good to you because you want him to be. You want him to be because God is good to you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you've tasted, when you've seen, it only leaves you wanting more of God's goodness. So Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house and the crowd goes wild in the worst way, not like a winning the World Series kind of way. The text tells us that the crowd was grumbling. And up until this point in the Gospels, the only people we've ever seen grumble are the Pharisees. But now, for the first time, it's not just the Pharisees grumbling, it's everybody because grumbling is infectious. It's like a disease. It's, it's a disease that we might be most prone to catch on someplace like Facebook or on Twitter. I was just scrolling through Twitter last night and I saw a post. This lady said, is Twitter just one long airing of grievances? And she didn't seem to be wrong. 
This grumbling language is meant to invoke another story that should be familiar to us. It's the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. Here are these people. They've been delivered from slavery, from oppression, from Egypt. They're called to inhabit a promised land. But their day-to-day is mostly spent begrudging what they do not have and grumbling about what they do have, what they're stuck with. I think that's the mark of sin in our lives. If the mark of grace, if the mark of salvation in my life is that more and more gratitude wells up from me, then I think the mark of sin, the, the, the mark that I'm losing touch with the grace of God is that I'm grumbling more and more. So here's the crowd, angry that Jesus is showing grace to Zacchaeus. And just imagine that moment, that Jesus is in your midst, and the only emotion to well up out of you is to grumble that he's not talking to you. Just imagine how angry they would be. The people who showed up early, hours early, just to get a front row seat. It's like if you've ever been to a concert at Kane's Ballroom, you know there are people who show up way too early to see whatever concert they're there for because there's no sloped floor, there's no tiered seating. When you get there, you stand in place and you get whatever view you get. But if you've ever been to a show at Kane's, you know there's that guy with two drinks in his hands who thinks, I can make my way up there. And if you've been that guy, grace on you. If you've ever had a drink spilled on you from that guy, grace on you. We've all had these kinds of experiences. I was a... Uh, 11 years ago, I was at a show in Detroit. Uh, I think it was Coldplay. So it had to have been about 11 years ago. And I remember we, we, we got the seats that we could afford, you know, and it's just we, we were where we were. And their show was big enough. I think, I think it was like the Viva La Vida tour or something. And a whistle for Viva La Vida. <laughs> And the show was big enough that they actually had an intermission. And I remember coming back from intermission, and we're kind of in the middle of the whole stadium, and you're facing the stage. And when the the second half starts, the music's coming from the speakers and everything, but we don't see them until you hear these people in the back screaming. And what they had done is they had gone to the very back of the auditorium, to the people who got the nosebleed seats, and just for a minute, giving them a front row view. Such a cool thing to do. But I remember these people sitting next to us who said, well, why did we even pay for these seats? This is something of what the crowd is experiencing. These are the folks who got there. They put in the work. They hoped to see maybe a miracle or two. And of all things that Jesus decides to do on that day in that place with those people, is go to Zacchaeus's house. Listen, there are, there are people, and hopefully nobody jumps to mind for you, but there are people that exist 
that if we could see God being gracious to them, it would make us angry. Again, I hope nobody jumps to mind for you. I hope I'm not that person. (laughs) But there are people that if we could see God being good to them, if we could see God working in their life in some tangible way, we wouldn't be grateful. We'd be grumbling. Because we don't think that they deserve it. We think that they've lived in such a way, that they have voted in such a way, that they have spoken up, that they've aligned themselves in such a way with so-and-so, that they've vetoed their right for God to be good to them, for God to live as their guest. And this is the nest that Jesus is stirring up. Ultimately, what gets Jesus killed is what he does for people like Zacchaeus. The crowd is fine with Jesus when he's healing the sick, giving sight to the blind or cleansing the leper, feeding the hungry, raising the dead to life. But once Jesus starts changing the world too much, once he starts doing things like this for people like that, now it's a problem. My dad, my my parents have been uh, divorced for 20-some years now. And that means, as a kid, it's hard because you inevitably spend a holiday with a parent and the other parent spends the holiday alone. And I remember as a kid growing up, my dad would do these things that I thought were so odd. Like, he would have a plumbing issue. And so he calls the plumber, like two weeks before Thanksgiving. And then he says to the plumber, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? And the guy, I mean, more often than not, they wouldn't have anything going on, you know, well, you know, my wife just died, or, you know, I'm divorced, and my kids are spending it with their mom, whatever the story was. And my dad would say, well, come on. Why don't you come to my house and have Thanksgiving? I'll have a meal. You don't have to bring anything. And I remember as a kid, when we would have Thanksgiving dinner at my dad's house, and there'd be this guy... As a kid, I was so angry about it. Like, this is our family. These are supposed to be our people that were coming and having this meal together. He's not a Pano. He's the plumber. (laughs) And now, on the other side of those stories, I'm so grateful that we were able to share those meals with those people because I think it's something of what a faithful life looks like. To know that this person isn't in our family, but they're welcome. They're welcome for a meal. So the hard, the wonderful, hopeful reality is that all of Christ's life is about this kind of restructuring, this changing the world past what we would maybe hope for, or expect, or imagine. But we should know that when Jesus starts to change the ways that the rights and the wrongs work, restructuring who's in and who's out, this is what gets Jesus killed. So it's in this moment, the crowd is angry, they are grumbling, And it's here that Zacchaeus says to Jesus, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. 
And if I have wronged anyone, if I have defrauded anyone, I will repay them four times over. So if you're anything like me, maybe you're a little bit cynical, I would be saying to Zacchaeus, shut your mouth. Somebody here is going to hear you. And somebody here, they may just try and pull one over on you and come and say, well, you've wronged me. And then what are you going to do? Zacchaeus, keep your voice down. But he does. That's what he says to Jesus. And I can't help but think that he does it because of Jesus. Because he's just encountered grace. Gregory the Great, he points out that in Luke's gospel, the Greek here for the word Sycamore is a bit of a wordplay, that it can also be interpreted as the foolish tree. Gregory says, Zacchaeus climbs the tree of foolishness to see the wisdom of God. And what is more foolish than not seeking for what we've lost, not keeping our possessions away from robbers, or not returning injury for injury? Why does Zacchaeus offer to give it all away? I think it's because he's not defending himself anymore. He's not protecting himself anymore. This is the foolishness of a story like Zacchaeus. That Zacchaeus has found Jesus. He is really, Jesus has found him. And so he doesn't need to protect himself anymore. That this is the foolishness that enables us to see the wisdom of God. Because when you really see Jesus, you really don't have enemies. People may think that they're your enemies, but we know they're just our brothers and sisters who don't know they're our brothers and sisters yet. So we can come out of the tree. And even though I might be cynical enough to think there are people in this crowd who would wish to see harm done to me, I can offer to give away what I have, knowing they aren't my enemies. They're just my brothers and sisters who don't know they're my brothers and sisters yet. This moment leads Zacchaeus to a kind of complete abandonment, a moment of compassion, but a moment of responsibility to his neighbor. I think this is another mark of a faithful life, is that a life that has seen Jesus has a refusal to self-protect. A side note, I think faithfulness isn't just about a refusal to self-protect, but I think it's a life rooted in generosity. Notice that when Zacchaeus comes down, having encountered Jesus, the first thing he wants to do is give. I bumped into a, a story, it was, it was probably on Twitter, I wish I could remember who it was, but it was a pastor who said her husband had come home and he comes kind of stomping through the house and he's grumbling and he runs over and he finds, where's the checkbook? She goes, well, it's in the cabinet there. She pulls out the checkbook and she goes, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I'm feeling selfish. So I got to go give something to somebody. And she's, she's just pointing out this moment, this thing that she loves about her husband is that when he realizes he's feeling selfish, 
when he's realizing he needs to self-protect, defend himself, to somehow hold on to things with a closed fist, that the best remedy is to go and be generous. Again, this comes back to a life that has nothing left to protect. Now, one thing that strikes me about this whole thing and what I pray we could see and what I pray that we could hear today is that Jesus doesn't say a word to Zacchaeus about his sin, about the ways that he's betrayed his own people, his own values, his ethics, in order to make a buck. Jesus doesn't stop under the tree and say, Zacchaeus, you are a greedy, cruel little man. Come down from there and apologize, and I'll go to your house. He doesn't say it. He just says to him, Zacchaeus, I came looking for you. Let's go to your house. And it's from that invitation that Zacchaeus seeks to care for and to reconcile with and take responsibility for his neighbors. That very recognition that he is loved by this one frees him up and makes him aware of his responsibility to those that he has wronged. That is how we know it's God's work. Because where God is most at work, I am most aware of my responsibility to my neighbor. Our friend Dr. Chris Green says, if idolatry is the attempt to have a relationship with God, without responsibility for my neighbor. Faithfulness is a love for God that looks like responsibility for my neighbor. It's loving God as I love my neighbor as myself. Zacchaeus has this communion with Jesus that frees him up from defensiveness. It moves him toward caring for those he's wronged. And that's the kind of life that we need to be living in the world. And Jesus says to the crowd, listen to this, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. This to me is the most striking line of this whole text. He too is a son of Abraham. Jesus says it to Zacchaeus, but everybody hears it. And he's saying, everyone listen, this is what salvation looks like, communion with God in a way that you don't have anything to protect, a radical openness as the sign of a life marked by salvation. And he says to him, he too is a son of Abraham. He is like you are. It's a funny thing about Abraham, that the whole scandal of Abraham's story is that the world lived in these cyclical patterns that you did what you did for the whole of your life. And the idea of leaving your people and going to do something new in the world was a completely foreign idea. But this is exactly what, what God says to Abraham to do. He says to go and to start a new nation, a nation that blesses all the other nations. And what's funny is that Abraham is doing this new thing in the world, and while he's doing this new thing in the world, do you remember the story of Melchizedek? Where Abraham is returning from a battle, and he comes across this guy, Melchizedek, 
who comes bearing bread and wine. And the text tells us that he was a priest of the God Most High. Now we can just hear that, but think about how odd that would have been for Abraham. That he's the guy that God told to go do a new thing. And while he's wandering through the wilderness, he bumps into a guy who knows the same guy, who's in on the same thing. See, this is why we have to be so open-handed with one another. Because just as soon as we're sure these people that we know can't be in on the thing, here they come bearing bread and wine. And we go, oh my gosh, they're in on the thing too. They're a priest of the Most High God. This ought to be our posture. This ought to be our expectation when we encounter one another. To ask ourselves, could they be in on this whole divine conspiracy too? The righting of wrongs, this grace-filled life. Is it happening to them too? What Jesus is saying to them and what I believe is saying to us is that you may not know it yet, but Zacchaeus belongs to you and you belong to him. That person that we are so convinced isn't worthy of a spot in the crowd is our brother and she is our sister. You are all sons and daughters of Abraham. You thought you were estranged enemies. But you're actually siblings. So get used to it. We who have encountered Jesus, again, we don't have enemies. We just have people who think they're our enemies. But really, they're our brothers and our sisters. We know better. And today, salvation has come to this house. You belong to one another. Notice, this shift in Zacchaeus, it doesn't happen because Jesus shames him. It doesn't humiliate him. Zacchaeus becomes aware of his own sins, of his own shortcomings, of his own faults, without hating himself, without feeling embarrassed. And I think when the judgment of God really comes and finds us, it doesn't blind us to what's wrong with us, but it makes us aware of it in a way that is never shameful, it's never humiliating, it's never embarrassing, but it actually moves us into empowerment to care for our neighbor. It's judgment that finds us, that empowers us to make right what we know we can now make right. It's judgment that calls us sons and daughters of Abraham, too, so that we can take responsibility for one another. That is grace. Cheap grace would tell you that your sins don't matter. Costly grace, the grace that we are called to, it transforms us so that we can live in ways that bring the righteousness of God to bear. No shame at all. No embarrassment at all. No humiliation, but the kind of awareness that empowers us to live with responsibility. That's what Jesus brings to Zacchaeus. 
This is what makes Zacchaeus a participant in the work that Jesus is doing. This kind of salvation, the salvation that we're called to in Jesus Christ, it reveals itself as responsibility for our neighbor, but particularly the poor. Maximus the Confessor has this passage where he talks about Jesus and the poor, and he says, if the poor man is God, it is because of God's condescension in becoming poor for us. All the more will we become like God as we heal the hurts of those who suffer, loving others in imitation of God. Listen to this. The one who has become like God, those who have partnered with what God is doing in the world, has the same power of saving providence that God has. How scandalous is this idea? And where does he get it? There are several places in scripture like Jesus saying, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. And Paul saying that Christ who was rich became poor for us. Today's lectionary, it includes Isaiah 1, which is God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the text, God rebukes them for their burnt offerings. God rebukes them for offering incense. And God tells them that their festivals have actually become a burden to God. In one part of the text, it actually says, who told you to do these things? It's like, well, you know, we've got Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And there's books written about the minutiae detail about how, what kind of priest offers what kind of sacrifice and on what day you celebrate this festival and how to properly offer incense there's books about this thing, and here's God going, whoever told you to do that? <laughs> well, you did. But he tells these people, all of this has become a burden to him. But this is what he says to do. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doing. Cease to do evil and learn what is good. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. This is the sin of Sodom, that they didn't seek justice, they didn't rescue the oppressed, they didn't defend the orphan, they didn't plead for the widow. Ezekiel 16, God compares Jerusalem to Sodom, and he explains that the sin of Sodom was that she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They did not help them. So the sin of Sodom is a refusal to take responsibility for their neighbor. It's a lack of justice. It's ignoring the oppressed, the poor, the needy, blind to the widow. That's the sin that God is rebuking. And Maximus goes on to say that Jesus has so radically identified himself with the poor that what you do to the poor, you do to Jesus. That's how seriously God takes this. What you do or fail to do for the poor, you do or you fail to do for Jesus. In Luke 6, Jesus singles out the hungry. He singles out the weeping, the excluded, and he calls them blessed. Why? Because Christ is with them. 
we become like God as we heal these kinds of wounds in the world, as we turn and do to the least of these. And here's the threshold, I think, between immature faith and mature faith. An immature faith would just simply wait on God to do something that God will do through us. Where a mature faith is the recognition that as grace enables me to take responsibility for my neighbor, I'm able to see and care for my neighbor. Then God does in the world what I'm asking God to do in the world. We say, God, why don't you help the needy? And God says, don't forget the needy. Go and feed the hungry. Remember the oppressed. Care for the orphan and the widow. We become God's saving providence in the world when we act in accordance with the grace that we've received. When we come down from the tree and we say, I'll give half of everything away. If I've wronged you, let me repay you four times over. We start to take responsibility for one another when we see that this is the grace we've been given. So sanctuary, may we refuse to be the crowd, keeping out those we are so sure Jesus didn't come to visit. By encountering Christ, may we see those who would be our enemies as our brothers and our sisters. And may we learn to carry the responsibility for the least of these as we encounter Christ in them. Amen.